All right. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing. It's Thursday, April 7th, and it's episode 173, like 163 games in baseball, but this is 173. I'm Phil Brandt, and with me, as always, is your friend and mine, co-host Burt Garland, shareholder with Ogletree Deacons here in the St. Louis office. It's our goal to keep you informed so you can more effectively lead your organization. Well, it's opening day here in St. Louis. Um, if you don't know that, you should. Uh, Albert Pujols is back uh, in a Cardinal uniform. It's the grand finale for Albert, Adam, and Yachty. Um, I think it's a great storyline. I don't know if it makes for a very good team or not. We will see, but it's definitely a great storyline. I will be there today uh, to find out uh, or to watch the game and see if we can have some success with this uh, dynamic threesome here. So anyway, today we have two very important topics to discuss. One is COVID litigation. It's on the increase. What do you need to know about it? We're going to cover that. Bert's got some good insight for you on that. And also union organizing efforts uh, seem to be uh, percolating around the country and right here in St. Louis. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and some things you can do to be alert for your workforce. But first, let's turn to the poll question for today. Since it's opening day, the Cardinals are a great member of uh, the AIM organization. Uh, we love working with them. Our poll question centers around the Cardinals. And the two-part question, first part is, will the Cardinals, very easy, win the game? And there are actually four answers to this question. One is yes by one run. Uh, the second answer is yes by two or more runs. No, they will lose by one run or they will lose by more than two runs. I will remind you they're playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're not supposed to be very good. Uh, so keep that in mind as you answer the question. The second part will be, will Albert uh, hit a home run in the triumph return to St. Louis? Yes or no. Those who guess correctly will go into a drawing for two fantastic books. Each books are signed by the author. Uh, the first one is Bet on Talent, How to Create a, Remar a Remarkable Culture That Wins the Hearts of Customers. That is signed by um, Deanne Turner, uh, who was our virtual keynote speaker in 2001. Remember, she was the chief people officer for Chick-fil-A. And the second one, It's Our Ship, A No-Nonsense Guide to Leadership. And that is signed by Captain Michael Arbashoff. Um, who was our 2019 leadership uh, speaker, um, keynote speaker, excuse me. So we're happy to give those away. You'll be put in the drawing if you get it right. A lot of pressure to do so. All right, Bert, good morning. How are you doing? And can you tell us what is going on with COVID litigation? I, I can, Phil, but uh, good morning to you. And I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised that uh, you're, you're doing this poll question and you're offering those really nice uh, prizes to anyone who gets it right. I'm really kind of surprised though you're not offering up your opening day tickets to somebody who, who you know, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't right. be appropriate for me to give those away if I can't give it to everyone. You know, it's kind of like if, if you're going to share, share with everyone, but I'm not able to do that. Um, I will say that producer Nick and I will be at the game. Uh, we are going to the game together. So he's got his shirt on. Um, hey, Nick, can you give us a shot at the back of your shirt? There you are. If Ooh, anybody good, knows what that stands question. for, put it into the chat uh, yep. feature. It's a, a SRO game 06. Um, and you can give them a, a hint with you your sleeve. Let me give you a, a hint. Yeah. 
So it's a World Series championship patch on the sleeve as well. So those are your hints. If you know what that means, put it in the chat. Uh, we'd love to see it. But sorry, Bert, if a ticket does come up, though, I'd love to invite you to join us. Yeah, I noticed the whole broadcast is going, except for me. Yeah. What gives <laughs> here? I don't know, Phil. That's just not right. That's anyway, all right. I'm, um, it's going to be a good game. Yeah. I'm supporting let's the get Cardinal. To COVID, let's get to COVID um, litigation, Bert. What, yeah. what, so what's it, happening with that? So it's been a little while since we've uh, talked about uh, COVID-19. Uh, we've kind of shifted gears and talked about Thank a lot goodness. of other topics. Thank you. And uh, well, like, like we've said, magically, it's about two years and uh, <clears throat> COVID-19 seems to be disappearing. And now, unfortunately, we're really dealing with the aftermath of uh, COVID-19, uh, which for employers and businesses is probably going to be uh, a pretty significant financial headache. Obviously not as much of a headache as COVID-19 itself, but this is going to uh, get pretty, uh, pretty real, pretty expensive. And what you could see on the screen there is Ogletree Deacon's COVID-19 litigation tracker. And I'll ask for a little assistance from Nick here as we kind of look around the litigation tracker. But just on the screen that's up there right now, you can see that uh, there are uh, several thousand cases pending around the United States uh, on COVID-19, COVID-19 litigation cases. Most of them, uh, probably at least a third of them are centered in the healthcare industry. Uh, 588 of those cases, Nick, if you might be able to zoom in on that industry chart that's up toward the top right, but you could see that 588 of those cases are in the healthcare industry, 479 of those are in manufacturing, 446 in public services, 393 in public sector, and 362 in hospitality. Uh, and just going with a couple more, 346 in education and 332 in retail. And what this really shows is that uh, people who feel that their employers uh, wronged them somehow during COVID-19 are now suing their employers. And the lawsuits are centered around many things, but obviously they're centered around masking mandates, uh, most importantly, vaccine mandates, uh, failures to accommodate uh, 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 disabilities and religious exemptions um, and various other uh, types of claims. The good that news Bert, are is anyone who has listened to this program will have no problems. Um, one, because we've covered all those issues relentlessly. Yep. Um, so hopefully all of our listeners won't have any problems. If they do, they're going to call you uh, yeah, and, sure. and we'll work through that with them. But no doubt, um, those are all the things we talked about that could become risk points for us. That's right. And, and Nick, maybe if you could just zoom in on the chart on the bottom quadrant uh, down there, not surprisingly, not surprisingly at all, the top 10 states by the number of cases, California- yeah has 1,248 cases, well over double the next closest state, which is New Jersey with 513, uh, and then New York with 344. Uh, Florida, I guess, surprised me a little bit with 311, and then you've got uh, Ohio with 270. 
And uh, one thing that I will say is that the top three states that have the most litigation, New York, New Jersey, and California, were three of the states that had the most restrictive uh, COVID-19 uh, restrictions uh, and also uh, mandates as far as vaccines, uh, masking, et cetera. And so hey, Bert, I think can it's you really tell us how many, how many are we seeing in Illinois? Because I can see that it's a shade of uh, yellow mustard color. Um, and I know we have many, many listeners from the state of Illinois. Yeah. And Nick, if you're able to just click on the state of Illinois, it'll zoom in there for us. And it shows that there's 181 cases in mm. Illinois. Mm. Uh, Illinois, interestingly, uh, the leading industry where the Illinois cases are, uh, uh, it's manufacturing with 25 lawsuits in the manufacturing sector, followed uh, by 19 in healthcare. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a lot. I'm surprised. I, I guess I'm not surprised with the manufacturing. It makes sense in the, in the fact that, you know, you weren't really able to work from home. Uh, so you had to come into the office and there, you know, people may not have been happy with that. It was hard to enforce the, the practices that were being uh, recommended by the, um, by the state uh, and or by the CDC. So that, that doesn't surprise me. Bert, talk, talk to me a little bit about you get some litigation. Um, you don't have an attorney on record. Uh, even if you do, I'm saying I would like for them to, to reach out to you and, and your firm. You guys have expertise in this across the country. Um, but what's the first thing someone should do other than contact their lawyer? Well, uh, the, it, it, sorry, it, that was me. I apologize. Yeah, the, that's all right. If I don't know, I, I, that was you. I'm not sure what that was, but uh, uh, I guess uh, the first thing, as with any lawsuit, is to start identifying the relevant records and the potential universe of witnesses uh, to whatever uh, is being challenged in the litigation. And if it's anything related to COVID-19, you're going to want to pull all of the uh, directives that you put out during COVID-19, all of the guidance that you provided to the employees, any policies that you implemented during COVID-19. Uh, and then very importantly, like I said, figure out who the universe of witnesses uh, will be for that particular litigation. You wanna have all of that in good shape uh, as you reach out to legal counsel. Now, is there anything um, that you believe would, would also serve as a layer of protection? Cause I'm assuming in many cases, these lawsuits probably um, boil up because someone was very sick or unfortunately um, became ill and died and they believe their exposure occurred at work. Uh, it, it, anything that leads you to believe that that's going to be covered really under workers comp and it doesn't go outside of the workers comp realm? Well, it, it, that's a good question, Phil. And, and we did spend a lot of time on our program trying to make sure that employers were in a good position to defend uh, against a lawsuit that was outside the workers' compensation realm. And in that respect, what we encouraged employers to do throughout COVID was to really adhere to the federal, state, and local guidance uh, that was being put out throughout COVID-19. Uh, by doing that, employers really put themselves in a position of uh, being able to argue that they did not behave in a grossly negligent manner. And really, if, uh, if, if unless the employer behaved in a manner that was grossly negligent, 
uh, most of those claims are really going to be uh, focused in the workers' compensation realm. There are a couple of lawsuits around the country where spouses uh, or other relatives of employees who came down with COVID-19 because they claim that their spouse or whoever else they live with contracted COVID-19 in their place of work, those people are then suing the employers and that is outside workers' compensation. Yeah, but again, be, yeah. yeah, but again, I think that the, uh, the, the point here is, is that as long as employers really made a good faith effort to comply with that, that federal, state, and local guidance, then they will be in a position to say that they did not behave in a grossly negligent manner. And if there's any claim that's out there to be made, it really has to be made in the workers' compensation realm. Yeah, and any insight on whether or not I'm assuming some of these would be in the form of class action? Um, we really haven't seen a lot of class action yet, except to the extent that people were challenging vaccine mandates. But it appears now uh, that most of the vaccine mandates uh, have, have elapsed. Of course, the OSHA rule failed. Uh, remind everybody that that was just really a couple months ago that uh, the Biden administration was trying to push the OSHA rule. Yeah. The well, that failed Court. and then it went away. Yeah, failed and disappeared. And But that was, again, just a couple months ago. I mean, in January and February, that was all the talk that was going on. Uh, and even uh, United Airlines, which had a class action down in Texas over vaccine mandates, uh, they've dropped their vaccine mandate, uh, their, their private employer vaccine mandate. And so uh, really interesting, again, how, how a lot of that has disappeared. I did just click on on the chart. Uh, it's not up there in front of you all, but in Missouri, uh, there are 50 uh, COVID-19 cases pending in Missouri, 11 in the healthcare sector, eight in education, five in manufacturing, and four in hospitality. Yeah. And I guess the, the concern I would have is that um, as, as this becomes more publicly known and people start talking about it, then you, you kind of have others and want to follow suit, uh, no pun intended. Um, but it, it then becomes a little bit more popular, particularly if someone has some success in a particular uh, state or, or district, I guess, at that point. Yeah, if people start, uh, if, if, if anybody gets a recovery, uh, you can bet that there will be others who, who will try to, the, the same avenue. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do we got there, Nikki, on the on the screen for the um, for the poll question? Well, uh, we're going to we're going to win by more than two runs, I think, is what it is. You know, I'm that would be my vote as well. I, I think we'll have more than two runs. Um, the Cardinals, I think, are going to be um, pretty strong, maybe second to to Milwaukee. Um, but I don't think Pittsburgh is very good. If, if we lose today, it's because of we're distracted and we definitely should win on paper. But you got to play the game in all nine innings to, to know the answer to that. All right. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Bert, let's, let's change topics. So the lockout's over with baseball. We know that because we're going to the game today. At least some of us are. Sorry, Bert. Um, but the threat of unions are still very much alive. And I continue to hear more and more activity around Starbucks. Um, I recently uh, just, just heard, I guess it was yesterday, that 
um, Route 66, which is a um, marijuana dispensary, um, clever name, Route 66. It's on Route 60, Route 66, I guess. Um, so clever name, but uh, nevertheless, they voted to uh, unionize their uh, dispensary and, and so on. And, and these are kind of small groups. I know there's always talk around Amazon. You might be able to share more on that. But nevertheless, it seems to be on the rise. And if we look back, what you can say, if we went back to, what's it, 1983, about 20% of the workforce, private workforce was unionized. And now it's about 10% uh, of the workforce as of the end of last year, roughly. And so there's been this steady decline. I know through my entire career of facilities that are represented or people that are represented by private unions, um, but that's changing very, very slowly with um, the onset of these little micro union uh, organizing attempts around the country. So I, I guess what I'd like to do is just get your perspective of, you know, you watch this closer than I do, but what, what do you see happening as it's uh, as union organizing is picking up? Yeah, so good, good questions, Phil, and I'm just going to correct uh, some of your stats there uh, and, and you, you, you kind of preempted me a little bit on a, on a chat poll question that I was going to ask people. Uh, but the, the private sector workforce in the United States unionization is down uh, to an all-time low. And I think you mentioned 1980, you, you were correct, 83, 20, yeah. or 83. Uh, in 1983, actually 16.5% of the private sector workforce was unionized. I won't go back even just a little bit further than that. Let's go back a decade. Uh, to 1973, 24.2% of the private sector workforce in 1973 was unionized. And uh, mind you, if I'm doing my math correctly, that was 50 years ago. So 50 years ago, almost a quarter of the private sector workforce belonged to a union. Uh, that, steadily, that has steadily fallen. Uh, we mentioned 1983, just to keep it consistent, I'll move to 1993. Uh, it dropped down to 11.1% of the private sector workforce. In 2003, it was down to 8.2% of the private sector workforce. 2013, it was down to 6.7% of the private sector workforce. And that trend still continues today uh, with union membership being down uh, at 6.1% of the private sector workforce. All right, so Bert, that's you what, passed that's the test. Was. Yeah. I threw those numbers out to test you and you passed it. Yes, um, thank so you, Phil. Perfect, so, so, well done, well done. So 6.1%, so which is the rate that it was last year, uh, it, it, it's the same rate as it was the year before. And if you think about that, to put it in perspective, Think of just being in a room with 100 people. Only six people in that room of 100 would belong to a private sector union. Now, Phil, let me see if I can test you here. If you include governmental agencies, what is the union membership rate of public sector workers? Mm, no, I, I'm going to say it's uh, more than double for sure. Of, so you, so you'd be in maybe private. the 12, 12%? area for public yes. sector. Yeah. So you, you might be, uh, you'll be shocked then to learn that in the public sector, 
33.9% of the public sector is unionized. And if you think about that- I would guess that, that that number is growing um, as our government employed um, workers are growing. Yeah, and you, that's exactly right. And you think about entities like the Postal Service. Uh, interestingly, even the employees of the National Labor Relations Board, the employees of the board, the federal governmental agency that is in charge with that is in charge of enforcing the National Labor Relations Act, their employees belong to a union. So, mm. uh, so, so again, that's right. Thirty-three point nine percent of the public sector workforce belongs to a union. Uh, if you add the public sector together with the private sector, union membership in the United States totals ten point three percent. Now, why are we giving you all of these statistics? Because unionization efforts are dramatically on the rise. It's not necessarily translating into increased union membership yet, but efforts to organize are dramatically on the rise. And when Biden came into uh, his presidency uh, on Labor Day of last year, Labor Day of 2021, 20, uh, he, he hosted some folks in the White House. Uh, and during that presentation of, of big labor, he said, I wouldn't be here without you, and this is your house, and I mean it, be, meaning the White House is your house. And so uh, he, he is definitely pro-union and is doing everything he can to help organize. He held a uh, conference yesterday. Yesterday, he spoke to members of North America's Building Trades Union in Washington, and he touted his administration's efforts to make it easier for workers to form labor unions. And I'm going to give a quote for him from him. He said, by the way, Amazon, here we come. Yeah. And so uh, Amazon, which has become one of the largest employers in the country, uh, Biden administration is going to do all they can to help the workers at Amazon organize. And those, those comments from him came on the heels of a victory for Staten Island, New York warehouse workers who uh, formed a union in the face of opposition from Amazon. There was a, there was a second vote uh, that should be coming up in a, in another Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, and organizers are eyeing union pushes at more of the company's facilities in the region. Um, there's going to be another vote uh, in an election in Bessemer, Alabama, in an Amazon warehouse after the workers lost or, or after the union was defeated uh, in that petition last year. So. Uh, Biden administration is really going to be coming after uh, after Amazon and really all other employers. Yeah. So, all right. So let's talk about the scenario that we have. And this is a little bit what worries me um, because we still have many people working from home um, and that creates one one scenario of not being supervised. But it also if you're a supervisor, you're not supervising your group. Um, with visual observation as much as you, you may. And that visual observation is really a key part of looking for, you know, the, the, the signs of a union organizing attempt. So let's just kind of talk through what are some of the signs that we should be looking for in today's world for union organizing attempts. Um, and, and I just downloaded a, a top 10 list uh, according to a, a group called Projections, and I think they're a pretty well-respected group. And they, you know, the first thing they talk about is, is just obvious signs, things that you see physically, buttons, badges, pins, 
union authorization cards, things like that. That's the, the first sign is the obvious signs that there's an interest in union organizing. Um, and then after that, it, you know, this one, I think everyone's gonna go, oh, that, that could be me. And that is when turnover rates change. Uh, when people, you know, you have an increase or change in your turnover rate, it creates, I guess, a couple of um, areas of concern. One is um, you could have, I'll call them union salts who are applying to work there to create the union havoc and, and lead the organizing attempt. Um, but you also have people maybe um, who would be in favor of the company don't want to stay and be a part of the rumbling that's starting to occur. So you start to have turnover rate uh, and an increased amount of that. Um, and the next thing that they talk about here is the change in the language of exit interviews. And hopefully everyone practices exit interviews, but the, the concept of you know, people referring to a work environment of dissatisfaction, um, which is explained in a tone very differently than it had been before, or maybe they're referencing, you know, it's been hostile. Uh, my friends aren't exactly what they used to be. These types of things where it's the environment has changed and caused your turnover rate to increase. Your exit interviews start to tell you um, different information than it has before. Um, let's see, the uh, language of the employees changes. Um, in that case, uh, they might start using words like grievance and or job security or employees rights or workers privilege, these types of things that weren't necessarily always used um, when you're in a conversation with your employees. Now, these things always seem to happen a little bit more so when you're in person and um, they couldn't happen over video. But most of the time, I would assume these things are going to happen when people are working collectively together, um, that that environment may be more right than when people are working at a distance from afar. Um, employee number five would be employee communication behavior changes. Um, so that's just, you know, managers will notice like employees who were previously friendly with them suddenly become less communicative. There's that natural you know, I, I don't feel good about what I'm doing or what I might be supporting. And, and the supervisor was a friend of mine or is a family member, all these scenarios, and they start to distance themselves and, and create an avoidance um, with um, the people that they used to uh, communicate and uh, I guess be allies with. <clears throat> and that leads to number six, which is new employee allies. And I've seen this firsthand so many times in my experience where you often have, I'll just call it two alphas in a, in a work facility who really, you know, each are leading different groups for different reasons over the years. They're the leaders of their little packs within a facility. And the next thing I know, they're coming together and uniting for a cause. Um, and that is a for sure for tales time that yes, um, when people that one, don't start hanging out, start hanging out and socializing together and coming to work or leaving work together, standing in the parking lot, talking, and you never seen them hang out in the parking lot before. Those are signs I think that I know I have seen uh, time and time again that are definitely uh, something that should cause your antenna to go up. Number seven is the social media language, watching you know social media. What are people pushing and publishing uh, in that space? Number eight is you know, employees are on the phone more, trying to keep people away from 
the facility uh, involved in what's going on at the facilities. If the workplace becomes more emotional, number nine, um, that's usually by design. People are trying to create the disruption um, and create uh, an emotional environment to get your management and supervisors to react in a way that's unfavorable. And then employee, the last one is employee routines uh, will change. Those are the top 10. Bert, is there anything you would drill in on with your experience or emphasize differently? Yeah, I mean, obviously those overt signs are the most important things to look for. Uh, when you see authorization cards, new people at the facility who you know don't belong there, um, and, and, and uh, other union propaganda, those types of things, are those are the easier ones to pick up on. Those less overt signs are a little bit harder, and that's what managers and supervisors really need to be trained and educated on. Uh, to look for like that, uh, you know, the dispersing crowd. If a member of management walks up to a group of employees who are huddled together talking and the crowd yeah. just sort of disappears. And, uh, uh, and, and that things... is so true. That definitely happens. I mean, I've, I've been that manager where I walk up and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody just kind of goes in a different direction. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah, kind of like your kids, they were being naughty or something and, oh, here comes dad and they run off. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of hush hush and you know something was being talked about, but nobody's really saying it in front of you. And, you know, from that perspective, I would say that uh, good idea to keep an eye on uh, break rooms and smoking lounges and, and lunch rooms and those types of places for those uh, dispersing crowds. And that's also where you get the opportunity to see that uh, employees who who may not necessarily previously have gotten along or have been known to hang out together and all of a sudden they're best of buddies. And yeah. uh, so, so it's those less overt signs. And just to kind of put it in perspective, I know we're up against the uh, hour here, half hour here, uh, union election petitions uh, in the first half of fiscal year 2021 compared to the previous six months, union petitions were up 57%. Uh, wow. So, so almost, uh, so, so, uh, yeah, I mean, 57% is a lot. Yeah. Unfair labor practice charges also increased by 14% during that time. And the last thing I'll leave everyone with is uh, everybody who, who's been on the program knows that I was involved in a uh, very tense uh, union organizing campaign down in Arkansas uh, that wrapped up. The vote was held on, uh, the actual count was conducted on December 28th last year. We won overwhelmingly, the company won overwhelmingly. But uh, in my conversations with that, uh, the business agent who was leading uh, the charge on that petition, he literally made the statement to me that it is time for the employees to bring employers to their knees during this time of uh, of, of really uh, low, low unemployment with more jobs available than there are people avail available and willing to work in those jobs with inflation running rampant. They know that employers have their backs against the wall and yeah. they need employees. Now that's, and, it's, uh, it's and, the right they're, market they're, if you want to look at it that way for it and um, yep. something for us all to be alert of. All right, May the 4th be with you. Our leadership conference is coming up on May 4th. Uh, the, most of the seats have been sold. 
Uh, however, there are still seats and tables available. So if you're interested, make sure to book those now. I always hate it when people are asking me, can I do something special for them? And while I would love to, I'm not able to. So we would hope you would join us on May 4th uh, at Westport Plaza for a wonderful, wonderful event. Um, Bert and I will be back on air next uh, Thursday at 7.30. If you have topics you want us to discuss that are important to you, send it in to us and we will be sure to address those topics and bring a conversation over uh, the morning briefing for you. So we'll talk to you then. Until then, let's go Cardinals. Looks like they're gonna win by more than two. If you are right, we will put you in the drawing um, and you might win one of the two books that we're giving away. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. If you've ever been to a career fair, there are many different companies there, all clamoring for the attention of these 22, 23-year-olds just about to graduate college. And we needed something that set us apart. So we produced a VR video that showed a glimpse in the life of what it was like to work for Nortech. But they could do so in a way that really was pushing the edge of technology, which is how we wanted to be seen by those candidates. We empower our employees to reach forward and look for those new opportunities. And the VR technology, using it during the recruiting process, allowed us to do that.